0: Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors.
1: Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone's keeping well right now.
0: I want to say hello to everybody, Matt Guy here, hope everyone's spectacular.
2: Spectacular, very good. Hello everyone. How hey, can you not be spectacular then? It's August, it's a great time. I've been to a canal festival. I, I saw that today. I, I thought it was just going to be a load of like boat people just lined up, like, like when you get the Lotus Club meeting and stuff like that, like boat wankers like getting all excited over their rods and things. Mm. But the fact that there was like proper tents and everything on the car park. I was quite intrigued. Not intrigued enough to go and have a look, but I walked past it. Well, I wonder if it's.
0: I have like real vivid memories of back in the day being in Wentzfield High Street and there would always be a demonstration of what to do if there's a chip pan fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered it like, do they exist around the rest of the world or is it is just Wentzfield a hotbed for chip pan fire related injuries? And I always remember them being like, don't throw water on it. It's got to be a damp cloth and all these kind of things. Um, and then, then they had like the fire brigade and everything there, and it probably like, brought me back. They also had um, the band. Now, I don't know if I've ever said all this, but I used to be, do you know, I used to play the trombone and, and the drums and cymbals in Wentzfield Marching Band of the same type. Not at the same. You <laughs> it wasn't a one man band <laughs> yeah, with various stages of my there. career. Um. Yeah, and they were there as
1: well, and I was like, well, what a day! This is bringing back all memories." Yeah, tremendous. sounds like a brilliant day. So, what was the canal fest? What was actually going on?
0: Like there were a load of boat, like barges and stuff that were had that were set up as like craft stalls and like legitimate. And then there were loads of like gazebos for charities and different events on, and they had a fair at the other side of the pub, the Nickelodeon, and. It's just an event they have on every year, apparently, but we were just in Wentzfield and knew it was on, so we just trundled down there to have a look at it.
1: It sounds like a good way to spend the Sunday, to be fair. Nothing else to do, either, so why not? It was a very, like,
0: English overcast Sunday kind of thing to do. And it's funny, actually, because talking about canal fest on Saturday I cycled to work to go collect my car for reasons, because my car was there. And uh, I was cycling along and I was like, this is like the most old man thing I've, I think I've ever thought in my life or said in my life was like, i was cycling along going, God, you know, there's iPhones and AI and everything. <laughs> God, the canal network's good in this country, isn't it? What an invention. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, I went, oh, fuck it up. What am I saying?
1: This isn't the, 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 the stupidest thing ever. So you know you're getting old, isn't it? When you start praising the infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Victorian here, England <laughs> in the, cu- the cut, as they say.
0: Tremendous. Uh, what we drinking there, Matt? Uh, so I've got a Club Tropica, the Tiny Rebel can, um, which I do enjoy because it's meant to be a dry August for me. Um, <clears throat> but, right, I've, I've doubled back on myself because I'm going to say something now that, that really annoys me. When people use the term... That they are sober when they're not an addict. Mm. It, uh, there's something about it that, like, I'm like, mm, is that is that a thing? Like, I sometimes I don't drink for two weeks, but I don't call myself two weeks sober. I yeah. just haven't had a drink for two weeks. And I yeah. thought I'm only doing dry January because I drank so much in July. But then I have realised I'm drinking just as much fizzy pop, just as much orange juice, just as much everything else. that's equally as bad for you. It's not because I'm. Um, I was only not drinking, because I didn't want it to be unhealthy, not because I thought I had an alcohol problem. So I thought, oh, fuck it, I might as well have a drink. If I'm
1: going to drink coke all day, I might as well have a beer as well. (laughs) Apparently, apparently it's a sign of alcoholism if you need to have, like, if you have to do dry January, dry August or whatever. So yeah, apparently, if you feel that you need to show the world that you're not an alcoholic by having a month off it, that's a sign of being an alcoholic. Mm. So don't really see how that works.
2: Yeah, because if you were a real alcoholic, you wouldn't be able to do that.
1: Exactly, it makes no sense to me, but that's yeah. that's what the uh, the doctor said. so boys. No, it's just... M- <laughs> Matt's doing his part then.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I had forty points in in Whitby for the, the seven days I was there. Um, obviously spread out, so it's a sensible amount.
1: Um... Yeah, I mean, forty pints. I bet you weren't drinking much else other than alcohol, were you?
2: Well, no, I, I had one bottle of. One bottle of Pepsi Max cherry in the house. Um, probably to the rest See, of the I thought you were gonna say
1: I had a bottle of prime for some reason, I don't know <laughs> why.
2: <laughs> no, uh, it doesn't taste of anything, I don't understand. It's just marketing stuffy. I've not uh, drank it,
1: I'm not drinking that piece.
2: The early on, I thought they've B&M, so I thought, oh, why not? Mm. Um, and literally, why not? You might as well just go and drink tap water, pointless. Mm. Um, but no, I had, I had my, my big. Two liter bottle of uh, Pepsi Max Cherry, and I'd, the rest of the time go, I was on the beach or doing something else. So I, I, I just the old blackcurrant squash was the uh, order of the day, and, and a few cups of tea, which is what I said when I, I went the whole week with having one cappuccino because I don't drink coffee unless I'm at work or sometimes when I'm at home now, um, and it, it doesn't bother me. It makes no it makes no difference. I just carry on as normal, um, but. But to prep for that, I knew that that was going to happen, um, so I, I think I went and put about four points throughout the whole of July. I just didn't go out, um, but that's mainly because of a kind of clothes fitting issue rather than health, um, because the, there's obviously cause and effects going on there when you nearly hit forty. So, although I did come back and I've lost half a stone, amazingly, so there's that. But yeah, you you can't be an alcoholic if you have time off; it just doesn't work. No, no, I am agree, agreement. Uh, Andy, I've got a
0: question for you as a fellow coffee um, drinker in, Go on. on the extreme end of the amount of coffees um, <laughs> if you drink. Before. So, uh, on coffee TikTok, I see re- people routinely say you shouldn't have a coffee in the first 90 minutes of waking up. It has an adverse effect on you in terms of your day, in terms of keeping you awake. It does nothing in terms of waking you up and stuff. But well, you and I drink coffee for-, for taste as well as anything else. Mm-hmm. Do you feel any different if you don't have a coffee in the morning compared to if you do?
1: It, yeah, it, it, everything takes even longer if I don't have that coffee. So like just getting up to speed and stuff—the the, the say doesn't have that of impact, but it, and maybe it's just like psychosomatic, but it absolutely does have that effect on me that I feel like I'm now ready to get stuck into work and can motor through the caseload and stuff. So
2: I I do dispute the the theory. Of it. it would be funny if you can if someone could like placebo him just to see if it was just a mental problem that he's got. That if if you could find a, a substitute that didn't have any caffeine in it whatsoever and it tasted exactly the same, and the same thing happened that he are you motivated for the day. Even that if that was one well, of the things, or you are just your body craves it. Can we sneak in Mission Impossible: Star and slip some decaf beans into the what into the
0: <laughs> one cup machine?
1: Like I like to think that I could probably tell the difference, but like it, it has got to the point where it's a bit of an obsession, and I don't know if it's just the like, case it's, it's just motor function of pressing the button and getting the coffee, getting the the black gold come out to the bottom. I don't know if it's
2: just that at this point. Like the mouse in um or the rat in Lost. With Desmond. <laughs> You're trying it over and over again. That's all functioning. I... Yeah, that's it. <laughs> mm. Like
1: I have, I've replaced. So I'll only have like two proper coffees out of the machine during the day. And then I'll just drink the bog standard, you know, freeze dry shit. But I, I've replaced that with normal. Uh, so with decaf. No, so I have like reduced my caffeine intake. And I'm I'm better, but I am having like I'm having a, a double double to start of the day, and then a double <laughs> extra large at around eleven ish. Just just for
0: funsies. So it's funny because me me and Sam went for a meal for uh, for my birthday um, a couple of weeks ago, and like we have this lovely man who's get about nine o'clock in the evening. She looks at me like, do you want a dessert? And I was like, I don't fancy nothing majorly heavy. So I'll just have an affogato, which is just ice cream and a fucking double espresso poured on the top. Um, and I was just eating it And I was like mm, this is it. And it, like It's just a thing In restaurants isn't it Oh uh, dessert or, or coffees For the table And like In what In what Sensible world Would you have a fucking Like just Injection of caffeine Like just before you finish it Or just before you go to bed I know it's like a Digestive Or whatever it's called Like to cleanse the palate Or whatever But
1: It's just like the, It's just madness isn't it really Unless you're going Yeah Clubbing Or something <laughs> That's it With only time I've done that after like 10 o'clock, is uh, when I went to see the Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice because it was a midnight show and we had Man of Steel before, and then at one minute past midnight, the next film started. So that's the only time I've done it was to like power through till 3 a.m. in a cinema. Um, and like, I just didn't fucking sleep that night because I was just racing my tits off on a double espresso. Like, it's not a
2: clever idea, is it? Well, to be fair, I did yesterday have a caramel latte because I was get, I was flagging before the Joshua fight. I thought, oh no, just just a little bit. It it'd probably make it no difference whatsoever, but I already had like three cups of tea yesterday watching the football all day. <laughs> and I thought, oh, why not? So, uh, so I thought, well, I have got some, some pods, I'll treat myself. Um, I don't know if it made any difference, but obviously what happened to H1 doesn't. I didn't get any sleep anyway, did I, so There we are. Oh, that whole of them was shit and they my me to sleep anyway, but there we go. It looked like a proper punch as well at first, and then yo I got my phone out to record the replay to put it in the group chat, and he got bitch slapped him and he fell over.
1: <laughs> Terrible.
2: Uh, speaking of
1: coffees, whilst we're here, there was one I was going to mention to you. I, I may as well do it here because why not? Plotted cream fudge cold brew at Starbucks. Hmm. That's well, great, hey, baby. Firstly, what do you think of cold brews and clotted cream? In there on top, like I'm, I'm a bit intrigued by it. Uh, I think that's a good thing
0: because. So I was in Starbucks today, but the one at City World, and they never, they never had that, which is a shame. Um, but I always find cold brews like, for because of what they are, they're not generally milk based, or they're not like there's lo- loads of milk in them usually. So I'm usually more like having an Americano, but cold. Yeah, um, they're not like thick enough. I don't feel like I'm having a wholesome drink out of it. So Mm. to stick a bit of clotted cream to thicken that bad boy up Sounds delicious, to be fair
1: Yeah, I think I might have to take one on next time we're at the cinema But the only cold brew I've ever had was when I was in Brooklyn Which is like, the hipster's heaven And it's proper hipster drink at the moment, isn't it? Mm. But like you say, it's like drinking water But coffee flavoured It was like, it was fucking rocket fuel Because it was their extra strength one I was like, okay,
0: great way (laughs) to start the day Loyal listeners, we will get on to the film in a minute, I promise. But I've got to tell you something about, um, you know what's really big in coffee these days, which is the most bizarre fucking thing you've ever heard of? <laughs> People are, uh, are, are getting um, whiskey ice balls that like, you freeze, mm. and then putting them on like an attachment that like slots underneath your um, coffee dispenser thing, I can't remember what the, the, the word's called, So basically your coffee drips onto this cold ball before it then drops into your espresso glass. And it's meant to like take out, it's meant to like keep some of like the, and I'm using quotation marks here because of how silly it is, like the volatile flavor of the coffee. Um, It's meant to like make it really intense and stuff. And I was like, this, the world just got mad, isn't it? Like I'm I'm there with my little, my, my beginners, my first coffee set that I've got in my house that I'm using. And I'm like, oh, God, I really want to get like a new machine. And then people are throwing whiskey, frozen balls at it and like all this electronics and stuff. And it's just, just a mugs game, I think, in the end. <laughs> Literally. Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> well, that's not a new thing though. My nan used to do that. Oh, she used to freeze little ice cubes. Like, you know, the tiny, tiny ice cubes. not the the ones that you have like in a old fashioned or something like that. Or hmm. the one down from that, they like the smallest ones that you get. They've got like eight, like hmm. eight rows. She used to do that with whiskey. She'd put it in, freeze them as a block and then put it in a cup, and have a cup of tea over the top of the, um, the ice whiskey. And it obviously, it'd melt it straight away. But it, it apparently didn't mess with the flavor of the tea at the same pace as it would if you just poured it in like a deviant. I don't know. Oh, well, we were doing this all because I was 13 years old. So, um, but I hadn't thought about that for a long, long time. Yeah, but this is not, this is not, it, it's the same thing we always say. Things from the past are new again. Mm. You know, we, uh, here we are again there, and it's a hipster thing that you've suddenly discovered on, on Coffee TikTok, which is actually what pensioners in War Ransom were doing like 30 years
1: ago. <laughs> <laughs> that is the the influence of the uh, old age pensioners on reclude hipster scene. Excellent. Right, yeah, the the film, right. Um <laughs> Sympathy for the devil. It's only been out like a few weeks at this point, it's not even been out a full month. Um I think we all saw the trailer when it first came out. Stu, what going into this film? What were you hoping for? What, what did you think it was going to be?
2: Chaos. Obviously, we—I I did watch the trailer. I saw the poster, um, and that was enough for me. <laughs> um, just, just looking at him and the synopsis of it, I thought, well, we've never really seen him playing a villain that often, so I'm actually more intrigued than I normally would be for this kind of thing. And I wasn't disappointed.
1: Uh, Master, about yourself, what were you expecting from this one?
0: Yeah, just like Stu, I was looking forward to seeing him play the bad guy. Like he's played the anti hero before and he's played, you know, the villain in you know, a couple of things, but it's been a while, at least from what I can remember. So, yeah, just looking forward to something uh, a little bit different outside of. Um, unbearable weight and pig and some like the big films that have come out recently just knew straight away. This wasn't going to be like a big budget, big um, Hollywood blockbuster film. So some of the things that we've seen that were quite a little less understated, a little bit more understated were Mm. they've been ticking the boxes recently. So yeah, I was looking forward to it and I'm I'm a big fan of Joel Kinnaman as well, to be fair.
1: Um, So it was like, uh, yeah, I was intrigued. Mm. Uh, Joel Kinnaman, I should point out Yep, yeah, he's also in this House of Cards, Robocop, Suicide Squad I really liked him in Altered Carbon But I think I might be the only one Because I don't know anyone else who even saw it And those who deeps didn't seem to enjoy it
2: Yeah, I saw the first four episodes and gave up, Which is rare for me for Especially for something as nerdy as that was I thought this is He was sending me to sleep It was so slow um, oh, a lot. I quite enjoyed the
1: first season I didn't bother with the second, I've got to be honest cause it Didn't feel like it needed one that's
0: exactly the same. I really liked Old Carbon, to be fair. I just, um, it's completely slipped under the radar. I don't think anybody knows it even exists, uh, just in the, the recesses of Netflix.
2: I saw him in, um, in The Killing. Yeah, I remember him in that as well, yeah. That was the first time I've seen him in anything in The Killing, which was apparently a remake of a Swedish thing, but it was actually really good and not terrible, like, like the tuddle tuddle or whatever that Sky thing was. Um, I mean, that's yep. the other one that started off really good and then he got less so as it went on. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the other names involved in this, there's no other like named actors to be perfectly honest. So we look to the director, who is a Yuval Adler. Um, I've no idea who this guy is. He's done three films other than this one, and I've never heard of any of them. So, like, make of that what you will. But in those films, he has worked with Joel Kinnaman previously. He worked with Noomi Rapper Pace, Martin Freeman and Diane Kruger. So even though like these films are complete unknowns, he's worked with some fairly big names before, which surprised me a little bit. Uh, and the other name on this one, it was written by Luke Paradise. This is the first script which he has actually produced. But he does have eight other films which are currently in production, which seems a ridiculously high number. Uh, Most of those films don't have anybody attached to them, so whether or not it's a case of they're speculative scripts and we'll never see them, who knows. So, um, right, IMDb describes this film as, after being forced to drive a mysterious passenger at gunpoint, a man finds himself in a high-stakes game of cat and mouse, where it becomes clear that everything... Is not as it seems. The film begins with Joel Kinnaman's character, the driver. He's leaving his kid with family so that he can rush to the hospital as his wife is currently in labour. When he finally arrives at the hospital, the car park is busy. He's waiting for a car to leave so that he can pull up. He spies Mick Cage's character, the passenger, in a waiting room. The room is green and he's wearing all red. Like, I don't know why, but it looked like a very 90s Nickelback video. I don't know what it was. <laughs> uh, when the driver pulls up, the passenger jumps in and pulls a good on our man. Tells him to drive. I usually like to call the characters by their names, but I'll be honest, I'm not going to keep calling them the driver and the passenger. They're going to be Kinnaman and Cage throughout this one. Uh, they're driving down the strip in Vegas. Somewhere Elizabeth Shue is bumping into an alcoholic ca- on the corner by a casino. Yeah, there's some actors like, um, I'm trying to think, this. it's like Woody Allen. You associate Woody Allen stuff with New York, but with Nick Cage in Vegas, that just feels right to me. There's something about it where he, they just mesh nicely together. Don't they? Mm, there's like a this toxic
0: mix of showbiz meets sleaze meets. Mm. Um, Almost a carny About Nick Cage In some of his roles And that's like Vegas in a nutshell The glitz and glamour but With a seedy underbelly Yeah um, And that, that works for him And his character
1: In, in a lot of films Really well mm, Absolutely uh, There's not really Much talking going on In the opening in this film Other than the odd direction Here and there uh, Cage tells Kinnaman To save his begging And pleading bullshit Though um, He basically doesn't Give a fuck about Kinnaman's wife And children in this Eventually, the pair stop off at a gas station. Kinnaman tries to get help, but Cage is showing that he's not going to work. He's the one with all the power here. After a little more driving, Cage reveals, You remind me of someone I knew in Boston. He used to drink a bottle of Glen Liberty in a night. But Kinnaman says that's not him. He's only been to Boston once. Cage coughs. Immediate flag that he's going to die. Like, you don't cough unless you know that person's going to die. A little bit of a trope, but you know, we aren't talking about a big budget film here, so not overly uh, not overly bad. Um, That's 20 minutes into this film. I felt like the first 15 minutes on this was super slow. But the last five minutes, when we started to get a bit of dialogue going between the two. Seeing Cage flexing his muscles and there's a bit where when Cage was telling some story and Killerman interrupts him and Cage just loses his rag. We got that Crazy Cage that mm-hmm. we like in these kind of films. So, like, it's a straight-to-streaming B-movie, but I am interested 20 minutes in. He's got me hooked at this point. Matt, how are you feeling at this point? So
0: I am interested. I want to know what's going on, what's Cage's motives, what is Kinnaman's character hiding? Is it blatantly? Is these films are never as, like, simple as man is a hostage, and that's that. Um but I felt throughout it there was a constant like if if you could have had the like director commentary on in the background, it would have been like a hey, are you paying attention? Look, he's got no fuel in his car, wait till that makes a point later on. Hey, have you noticed that there's this XYZ? Hey, have you seen that there's no substitutions on the menu? Hey. It's like it was just it, it screamed kind of save this bit of save this for later. There was no subtlety about it at all. It was like it was I don't know, he, could, he, he felt a little bit forced, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I was interested in what was going on. I wanted to know how it was going to progress. And, you know, it was a bit slow going, but at the same time, well, to be fair, knowing it was like a 90-minute film, it was a kind of case of, well, get a move on, because you've got a story to tell here. But then kind of 45 minutes in, I was like, oh, this has got to the point where I thought this would be over now. How are they going to fill the rest of this 45 minutes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Stu, how are you finding it? I mean, on that thing about the telegraphing, I don't think it would have been so bad if they just showed it once, like the the, the 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 gas gauge. They showed it once, and then he looks scared, and then they show it again, and he looks scared again, and then it's mentioned, and it's the same with the no substitute thing later. It's like it's, it is like rammed down your throat too much, but only just. It's like one too many in in that kind of thing, but. Go back to the first 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> I did wonder because he looks so ridiculous, and why he's why is dressed like he is, and why has he got red hair? um, I think is he real, or is it as a guy? Because when he's standing there in in the in the parking lot at the start, and you can, what he why is he doing? Why is he just there on his own? Uh, we, we've seen weird stuff before, and the whole thing about. Is it all what it seems? And may well, I took it a bit too literally. And I know he wouldn't read that kind of thing. But because he's so outrageous and the fact that he's... So I thought, and we're go, we going to see him in the mirror and all that. So I was taking his down a completely different road. And then I thought, well, is he going to be in the car for the whole time? That'd be pretty cool. Um, so I was getting myself more intrigued than I really needed to be <laughs> in this quite bad, um, like you said, <laughs> B-movie streaming film, but durable
1: nonetheless, yeah. Mm. I was going to mention Cage's attire in this. Obviously, he's wearing all red. His hair is red, apart from his goatee, which is his normal colour. Like it felt like they were really going. Remember the title of this film, "Sympathy for the Devil." He's wearing red, lads. for what do we reckon? <laughs> I did think. I don't know if it's just because Matt watched um, "Devil's Advocate" the other week, and <laughs> it. So I don't know if my mind was going to that, and Cage is actually going to be the devil in this. But I'm sort of with you, I was expecting it not to be quite as straightforward. I did think there'd be some kind of ethereal quality to, uh, to Cage's character. Whilst driving on the freeway, Kinneman starts to speed. A policeman sees him and he begins to follow, eventually pulling them over. Cage gets pissy when the cop asks Kinneman for his licence and registration. Cage tries to talk his way out of the tickets. But after mouthing off a little bit, the policeman unclips his gun and orders Cage out of the car. They begin arguing and Cage, Cage says, get behind me, Satan, before getting <laughs> into the car and then unloading a clip into his face. I did think that was a little bit gruesome, actually, when he was shooting him when he was clearly already dead on the floor and he was just playing into his face with more bullets. Back in the car, Kinneman makes a defense of the cop, saying he could have had a wife and kid which Cage takes exception to Kinnaman in saying that, implying that Cage destroyed a family. How dare he say that? We get a scene where Kinnaman tries to escape by jumping out of his car, which results in Cage getting his nose broken, which is where we get the line, I dressed up for this night and you broke my nose. I want you to be 100% sex tonight, and you cut that in half. I'm 50% sex. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if this was a bigger budget movie, that could potentially be put the bunny back in the box, or I could eat a peach for hours. Like it has that sort of quality where, if more eyes see this film, because let's be honest, there's only about fifty people who are ever going to watch this movie. Um, like I feel like that could have been something that a lot of people would really love.
2: There's so many moments like that though that you can you can just see that just it, like the subtitle memes are just going to be out there straight away. But then the problem is you're going to be putting things like. That Johnson's thing where you'd got that that image waiting, but no one in their right mind is going to use it. Or has seen that film, and if they've seen the film, would never use it anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh,
1: Cage makes Kineman into uh, pull into a roadside diner. I know we spoke about this before, but I do love the classic Americana diner setting. There's just something about it that's it's really gimmicky but it just feels so familiar and comforting when you're watching a film like this. Um, In the diner, Cage explains that he's taking Kinnaman to an airstrip. There's a man, a very important man, waiting to meet Kinnaman. Cage gives a bit of a backstory that there is a bookkeeper from Brooklyn who worked for Jacob Sullivan. This is the man who will be at the airstrip. This bookkeeper fell in love with a Bostonian woman. The bookkeeper finds that one of Sullivan's associates was skimming money, so Sullivan has this man killed. Cage pushes Kinnaman, asking him for the truth, asking him to reveal who he is. Kinnaman plays dumb. Enraged, Cage starts to cause havoc, killing a man and threatening others to protect them. Kinnaman admits to being exactly who Cage believes he was. Cage continues his rampage. As Kinnaman tries to escape, Cage manages to shoot him in the leg as he gets outside ready for the end
2: game to begin uh steve that's an hour how are you feeling the whole day i think i loved it absolutely look it. So it's almost like he's just been they've just been just going to do what you want and he's just completely off the leash just being crazy caged to the max i mean just some of the like, way that that one that one shot where the it just stare it's just focused right on his face and his face just contorts in rage I don't know. I don't know if you're supposed to laugh or not, but I was, I was giggling through it about, at least 20 minutes of this middle part, just because it's so ludicrous and ridiculous that you can't not. Mm. And if it, I don't, I don't even know if it was supposed to be a comedy or not. But he, he's he's scene stealing. He's just out of control. And considering you've got other people in there like Joel Kinnaman, who is, he's pretty standard. He, he does a decent enough job, and we'll get to it after, but. The whole thing that he's kicking the the most indestructible table leg in the world, um, <laughs> to, to get the handcuffs off. That whole thing I thought that was that was pretty well done. And then he's the whole thing about the cheese and I I loved I unashamedly <laughs> loved the whole diner scene more than anything else in the entire film. The stuff with the the cheese, um,
1: it kind of reminded me of like it's almost like someone watched Pulp Fiction. I thought, oh, mm. I can write. Like, Royale with cheese scene. Let's do one about mozzarella and fucking cheddar cheese. Like, it, it felt like that. uh Matt, during this part, we did have that scene where he starts to play a song on the jukebox. I do think he was going to go musical for a minute, so I'm a little bit disappointed. Um, um, how were you feeling, though? I mean, I did
0: like it, um kind of ramping up the random factor of it, and then we were hit with another majorly unsubtle devil reference with the flames in the background while he's there standing in his stupid red jacket looking like the halloween horror episode where ned flanders is the devil like it's just it, it, it was it was as it was as subtle as a freight train wasn't it like everything about it um but it was good and the the thing the thing was um because he shot the hillbilly and because he shot the car I thought he there was a chance he was going to shoot the, the 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 mother and daughter. Mm. If he did not have shot the cop, and if he did not have shot that, and then that was the tension. Oh, is he going to shoot the mother and daughter? You'd think, well, of course not. He's not a monster. He's just. A, but actually, because we've seen him be a cold hearted dead killer, it did build a bit of a tension. And I thought, oh, where's this, Where's this going? Like nice. this. So that was um that was a good thing. Um, it was just, but yeah, the intensity of that was definitely the highlight of the of the movie, to be fair. The, that whole kind of maybe 20, 25-minute sequence of it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And the other bit where he goes chasing after her into the toilets as well, and because she's honest with him, he just leaves her alone.
1: Yes. Yes, because she'd been nice to him. Like, he's like, okay, fine. But again, you had that moment where the, the camera was trained on his face, and like you couldn't quite... It's like... So it's like he was an alien, like, like he was a devil trying to work out human emotion almost. Yeah. I really liked that he, you could see the, the battle going on in his head. I thought he did a tremendous job. Like, I don't know if the film deserves the performance that Cage had <laughs> but he really gave it socks. Uh, right, okay. So getting back to it, the real game of cat and mouse now begins. Kinderman is hiding amongst the trucks in the parking lot. Cage is chasing King. Can- throwing Molotov cocktails at cars as he goes along. <laughs> Cage finishes up the story that he began in the diner. When the man was killed, the bookkeeper's wife returns home and witnesses the execution. The wife becomes a liability, drinking and telling people all about this murder. This woman was Cage's wife. Cage reveals that when things started to go sideways, he got a call from James Levine. This is who he believes the Joel Kinnaman's character to be. Kinnaman jumps Cage. They start to fight. However, before Kinnaman can end it, Cage points out they know his wife is in labour and which room she's in. He will kill her if Kinnaman doesn't do as he's told. So Kinnaman agrees and gets back into the car. Cage finishes the story. His whole family were killed by Kinnaman. Kinnaman says that he's not James Levine, actually. He's really David Chamberlain. Cage rages, which starts him coughing again. Almost forgot that Chekhov's gun from the start of this film. Kinneman guesses that Cage has cancer, and this is his final hurrah. Kinneman manages to distract Cage for just a moment, allowing him a chance to drive off the road, flipping the car. We then see the car on its roof. Two police officers approach, but they get gunned down. Kinneman killed both of them before. Yeah. Sorry, Kinneman killed both of them. Before Cage dies, though, Kinneman tells him that he never meant to kill his daughter things just got out of control and then confesses to everything, explaining that the demons he saw, the vengeance he suffered and the second chance that he was given. Cage dies and the film ends there. Matt, how did you feel about the ending of this film? A uh,
0: bit hollow, if I'm honest. Um, I- I'd have preferred it if Killerman's character wasn't him. Mm. Yeah. Because it just, everyone's so unlikable by the end that, like, no one deserves a happy ending and nobody got a happy ending, really. Um And it, it just didn't, I don't know, it it wasn't a shock or a swerve that he was who Nick Cage thought him was. Like, this wasn't like a lucky number slevin ending. It's just, oh, okay, so he was who he thought he was and, yeah, he's kind of justified why he's wants him dead okay oh and now the film's ended like it didn't that they, they needed if that's the twist that they were going for it, it wasn't very it wasn't much of a shock um mm. so it felt a bit flat if i'm brutally honest
1: yeah yeah I, I completely agree we knew where it was going from the start i think and it didn't really deviate which i think like he could have done quite easily because there's not high stakes on this film they could have tried something
2: and I, I don't feel like they really did Stu, how did you feel about the end? I mean, they spoiled it by the old name of the film. So <laughs> yeah. So well, okay. The the guy he's he's got red hair. He's got a red jacket on. We're gonna feel sympathy for him. How, what, how is this gonna happen? Okay. And there you are. There you go. <laughs> They've <they're laughs> named the film what it's about. And I, I don't know if it's it's kind of like a, asking too much for something like a Inception, Spinning Top. Kind of ending, where he doesn't sit there trying to convince him to get back into character. I am David. I am David. Where he's rocking himself back into character again by the by the, the car, and turned into a bit of a wallflower again. Um, yeah, I think that that's that's pretty right. Flat is kind of it. I think mean, because you had you did have the middle part that was so amazing in, in the in the diner that it, it kind of almost couldn't live up to it, other than the Molotovs and the more madness but are they kind of lighted not resolved either way just even just for enough kind of discussion point of view not just oh yeah it's it's trying to be too arty i think it would have been better
1: yeah i think that'd be a good idea actually they could have left it with cage still alive and who knows what's going to happen next they could have done something other than what they did i think in the end but never. Right, so the budget on this one. I had to do a bit of digging around, and according to filmonclick.com, which I've never heard of, they said that this had a budget of $30 which I'm not entirely convinced about, but that's the only one I've been able to find. According to IMDB, the box office, um, $123,000. Obviously heavily caviated that it didn't really get a proper release schedule. I think he got like a weekend run in the US and then went straight to streaming. So the film was released on the 28th of July, 2023. The international box office for that weekend uh, in order from one to 10. Barbie Oppenheimer, Creation of the Gods Part One, One and Only, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Haunted Mansion, Chong On San Wan Lee, Elemental, Talk to Me and Sound of Freedom. Now, the whole Sound of Freedom thing sounds bonkers. It sounds like it's just full-on Trumpers fan fiction wank material. I, I kind of want to see it. I really want to see it. I can't get old it anywhere, though. It's it's a, it's blacklisted even from Polar Bay. All of the, like, legitimate critics who spoke about it have just said, to be honest, it's just a boring film. But I think it plays very much into the the right-wingers' ideology of, you know, saving kids you know, whenever. Um, what did surprise me though in the top 10? Three films in the international top 10 were Chinese movies. Like well, you can see why studios and Hollywood have bent over backwards to try and include Chinese characters in films and stuff like that. I know, I remember there's some Marvel films which when they're released in China, they'd got two Chinese characters, or sorry, two Chinese actors just to randomly appear to try and appeal to that market. So if three films can break the international top 10 just in China on its own. Like that must be an absolute powerhouse of a cinematic, uh, you know, uh, well to tap almost. So that's quite incredible. Uh, Right. So the scores on this one, uh, Matt, do you want to go first? Critical and audience scores. What do you reckon? I mean,
2: outside
1: of, Nick Cage podcasts. Has anybody else
0: seen it? So I, I genuinely think this audio score would be quite high, like 7.5, but I think the critics closer to five. So like, maybe
2: like six as an average overall, but like seven and five.
1: Okay. Okay. Stu,
2: what do you reckon? Yeah. I I think it's sort of similar. I mean, again, it does get let down by the end. So will that make it have a difference? It's only really be critically well received, is it? Let's be honest. So, I mean, I, I, I'd say four for that. Um, I don't know, audience. It was fun, wasn't it? So, yeah, I'll I'll say six, six for audience.
1: Okay, so IMDB have got it at five point five. The Metacritic is fifty three. The Rotten Tomatoes critical score is fifty nine, and the audience score is sixty two. So they're all sort of like five and a half to six. Like it's all very, like I don't know, like both of you, I sort of expected the audience scores to be better than the the critical, but it seems like everyone's kind of got the same opinion here. So critically, Megan Navarro from Bloody Disgusting, Adler's efficient director and Cage's unleashed, uh, sorry, and Cage unleashed aren't enough to keep viewers on the hook in this sparse story luke thompson from av club hey <laughs> i know I, I did quite like that name which no one will get a reference on the, on this podcast but it's <laughs> someone from out of the podcast but it's not actually him they just share a name uh, cage may hate that people quote his over the top moments out of context but since this entire movie is one you can't really take any of it the wrong way richard whittaker from the austin chronicle if noir is about, old say, as the old saying goes, bad people doing bad things for good reasons, then sympathy for the devil bleeds in all the right ways. And Katie Reif from IGN, Cage brings genuine menace to his manic role and co-star Joel Kinnaman holds his own as the straight man. Where the story lands is predictable, but the journey there is fun and full of tension. Oh, that's a perfect um, obviously, there's no reviews on Amazon because I don't think it's streaming through them. So they've got nothing. Uh, Letterboxd, so they do have a couple of reviews. Elvis the Alien gave it a three-star review saying, Blessing the Cage for making these otherwise painfully average movies very entertaining. Just Okay Critic gave it a half-star review, which honestly sounds like a five-star review to me. If you love hearing Nicolas Cage talk for 90 minutes straight and literally nothing else, you will love this movie. K.R. Huntley gave it a full five stars. Three stars for a watchable movie, an extra two stars for the exact insane Nick Cage performance you want when you say, I could go for a Nick Cage movie. (laughs) And finally, Steve Weiser says, nope, just nope. Oy vey, that was a 90-minute film that felt like seven hours. And to make it worse, it's pointless. Mick was the only bright spot, minus the accent. That was odd, to say the least. Overall, it just plain sucks. I didn't really pick up on anything wrong with his accent. It was... Oh, I did. I thought he was like a, a Christopher Walken
0: impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: it, it, wasn't, it wasn't his normal accent. I don't know what it was supposed to be, but it wasn't what he normally sounds like.
1: I, I, it just felt like it was a normal... Maybe it's just because it was very much what I expected as the film and I expect Cage to do something a little bit silly. And it did. So I didn't think it was particularly terrible. But, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Rice, right. Good, bad and crazy. Matt, kick us off. So so the
0: good was that it, it resembled other... It was like... Um, for, for those Pokemon fans out there, it was like a ditto. All its best things were because it was like other films. Basically, a ditto morphs into any other Pokemon in battle. Okay, yeah, thank for you. The, for, the, for the merchant <laughs> um, uh, And, like, yeah, it was like Pulp Fiction at parts. And it was like, or the tar- it was very Tarantino-influenced, it felt like, to be yeah. fair. Um, and, and that was a good thing. Those are the most entertaining parts of it. Which leans into the bad, is that, it it, 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 there was nothing original about it. It's nothing that we just haven't seen a million times before, especially with the ending being as flat as it was. It, it kind of just, it just left an uns, a, an unsavory taste in the mouth that there was an opportunity wasted because it, like it you know, God. In in twenty twenty three, there is no originality. We know that, but it had the base of something that could have been really good, and it ended up just being something quite bland in the end. I think, and, um, the crazy. I genuinely expected him to be a magician, like a proper magician. <laughs> and when he asked Killerman's character what card he wanted to use, <laughs> nobody's going to say the Ace of Spades. Come on, man! Like it's too obvious, isn't it? The most recognizable card in the whole of the fifty-two card deck. No one's going to pick it. Like nobody would pick that. And it was just like I was like, please don't say the Ace of Spades, please. Don't. And then he, then what did he go? Ace. Oh. And what suit? Oh, a fucking diamond. Now of course we was gonna pick the Axis Span- bow, I was just like, oh dear, this is this is a trick. And then of course he'd have that card in his hand. If he wanted to really like be like, oh, this this character's like witty or he's special or he's out of the ordinary, he'd have had like a four of diamonds <laughs> and that would be the card that he just was gonna say. Yeah. And he'd have he'd have, we knew because he had led him in the conversation to want to pick that card, and that was how like his character was a master manipulator or something
1: like that, but well, no, he just picked Motorhead's famous song. And as it... it felt like the Ace of Spades was very much what the rest of the film was, wasn't it? In mm-hmm. much that's the most obvious one to pick. So everything was just the very most
2: obvious thing throughout the rest of the film. Well, what have you got? I mean, the good was the feather. he was thoroughly entertaining, and oh, I know that's the next part as well for how he was framed and not my normal kind of sp- thing to go on but like i mentioned earlier like how it, it kind of focused entirely on him and they just let him get on with it i love that because we've seen we've, we have seen him have performances in the past where crazy cage has had the potential to come out and he's never done it and there's been no need to do that um in other films and he, he, he has in this it makes absolutely perfect sense for him to be as mental as he is and if that was because he was a producer on this as well because if you're invested then maybe you care a bit more i don't know i don't think that, that that goes towards it but whatever it was i thought he was superb um and the bits with him in it i know that you're talking about three characters really um but the bits with him in it and a lot one of you if you wanted 90 minutes of this I'd, I'd happen to go for 90 minutes of just him and like this character and the mental backstory we could have that next um the bad was like we've already mentioned the ending it just killed it off and not in the kind of next way either where that was just annoying this it was just this it was just a little bit disappointing when there were so many better ways they could have done it um i don't know it's obviously budget and whatever but it, it just kind of it saddened me because I had I did have such a good time in that middle part of it, for it then to just kind of slope away. It was just a bit sad, really. Um, and the, the crazy was the only bit I knew about it before I went in because I remember at the time when when we were looking at the films for the year, and the fact that he dyed his red hair for just for the sake of it, and he wasn't even a character trait. He, he just decided to do it, and he yeah. turned up like that. And you think, well, okay, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you? Why
1: wouldn't you do that? I mean, that, that does go to speak about how invested he was in the film, doesn't it? If he just decided, oh, this character's got red hair, and then doesn't tell anybody which you'd think as a producer or, or, you know, scriptwriter or something, you'd be a little bit perturbed, like, why the fuck's he done this, They're being told But Like, fair play to him, because I, I think he did work on the character quite a bit. Everyone else was kind of generic throughout this, but you couldn't say that for Cage at all. Really, I thought he was tremendous in this one. Uh, the good, I like. I echo your sentiment on this one, Stu. I think it was a very enjoyable two thirds of the film. I thought the, the you know once it got going at the beginning, it got quite interesting. There was a lot of subterfuge on what's actually going on here. Then we got that really fun, silly middle portion that was tense as anything, but really really fucking stupid in parts as well it was it was excellent, I really enjoyed it, but the baddies very much that the end was a bit of a damp squib it did feel like it was three other films stitched together though um, well, I'm not going to do it because what my, if you like this film, these one of them but it, I did recognise three distinct movies in this, which did make me think you could have done something a little bit more original so I think that they did let themselves down somewhat by by not just trying something different at the end and give us something a little bit different. Just give us something to I don't know, something else to talk about other than that was very pain by numbers. Uh, and the crazy apparently ninety or up to ninety percent of this film was filmed on a sound stage. What? Uh, yeah absolutely none of that to me looked like it was same stage work it all looked like he was actually shot on location I was kind of stunned at it uh, apparently it was originally set in New York during the winter but changed to Las Vegas don't know why I think that's definitely the right change because everything looks so much as Matt said earlier it looks seedy and they still needed to have that seediness to it so I think that's it's kind of amazing that they they completely changed the setting, but there was the right call at the end of it. But yeah, the uh, the sound stage, yeah, I, I'm not buying that at all because the only one that like I can you can guarantee must have been done on a um, on set, Oh, sorry, on the actual street would be the cop murder because you could see houses and stuff. I'm guessing, but yeah, apparently everything else was shot on a stage. Which no, I don't get that one well.
2: unless they're using the Mandalorian thing. But that would be a bit excessive, wouldn't
1: it? It would. It's like they're not going to spend the money to hire out decently products, are they? So yeah, but yeah. I, think, I mean, they did a very, very good job with it, in my opinion. I thought, yeah, I would never have guessed it. Mm. Uh, right. So, did you enjoy the film,
2: Stu? Yeah, I think overall, yeah. I mean, you can kind of take. You watch it again at some point, and you take the Knowledge that that is how it ends. Maybe you get something else out of it because of knowing full well from the start that he was the guy all along. Um, I don't know if <laughs> watch watching more than once. Um, maybe you get that from it, but yeah, hopefully I, I enjoyed it more than I didn't, so yeah, I did. And so, can you recommend it to anyone? Yeah, you kind of can because it's if you were an example of him being insane, then you just watch this. And I think for for what it is, there's pretty low investment being aired off. Um, throw away nonsense. You ever not gotta sit there and concentrate like it's fucking Oppenheimer or anything like that. Yeah. Um I think it's kinda of perfect, especially it could be the like the perfect Sunday hangover film in a way. Um mm. and in a in a weird food context, a weird situation of me watching it on a Saturday afternoon. Um which I can't remember the last time I've ever watched a film on a Saturday afternoon before. Um, definitely as an adult, anyway. But, yeah, it was... Uh, I did enjoy it. For what it was, yeah. Very good. Mm-hmm.
1: Mass, did you enjoy it?
0: Uh, I can't say I did, to be honest. Like, it has its moments, for sure. But I was definitely like, I'm watching this out of necessity than, in, than pure enjoyment. Like... Knowing what I know now, would I watch this if I wasn't doing this podcast? Probably not. So mm. no, I can't I can't say I really enjoyed it, to be
1: fair. I think I'm more on Stu's side. Like I like a, a silly bee movie and it, it scratched that itch of, you know, it being a very like a very pain by numbers genre flick. You don't have to think about it too much. I don't know. I I think if I had to pay to go to the cinema to see this movie. My answer would be very different, but as yeah you know, something that's just straight to streaming, yeah he did the job. I, I sort of agree with all of the reviews we had. Like it's very much a five and a half, six out of ten. You know, straight down the middle, really. Um, based on this film and this film alone, was Nick Cage any good? Matt, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean he carries the entire the entire film, I and mean, if it wasn't him in that role, it would have been switched off like yeah the first 20 minutes so yeah as much as i didn't enjoy the film as an overall piece his performance was the only thing that kept me watching it and you know that says everything about it really
1: yeah i mean like I said earlier like i don't know if the film deserves his performance because i i mean i agree with i think he was excellent everyone else was just fine but he was he was really good Stu, what do you think
2: yeah i think trying to think who, who you could like kind of think to put there um, I don't know Mark Ruffalo for instance he wouldn't he wouldn't be anywhere near this kind of performance and you needed someone made, someone slightly unhinged to play like this um, yeah for for the first one in a long long time I think he's essential for this role <laughs> um, and like you said as well he, he'd gone so far above and beyond um, the Call of Duty for what this is to put to put this performance in that it's <laughs> in a real way you could even argue it's in his top ten performances because it's so mental and insane that coming into the craft fair play to him. yeah he was great. Hmm. It feels
1: like an early two thousands cage performance. Like I don't feel like we've had this kind of a cage since probably about two thousand and twelve or so. I've got a lot of sort of bumbling along, especially like the B movies that Cage did during the the teens. This feels better than most of those, in my opinion, anyway. Um, So I I, I really thought he gave a really good performance. It's kind of wasted because no one's going to fucking see it. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. Uh, Right, the final question then. I want you to finish the sentence. If you enjoyed Sympathy for the Devil, you may also like
2: Stoop. When the obvious one is collateral because it's the same film yeah. um and even even the shot from outside the car where you're just looking at his face and the reflections i like, thought well this is just collateral mm. um which is obviously a better film than this um it's not as fun so there you are you take your choices <laughs> that's very
1: true uh matt what would you uh recommend in the spirit of a seemingly
0: good guy caught up in the wrong uh wrong wrong, wrong place wrong time uh phone booth oh yeah I, oh. I, I love phone booth um and that does have a decent bit of a kind of a twist to it and tension and everything else and a good escalation as the film goes on towards the ending you know it's not a fucking classic but it's certainly worth a sunday afternoon watch after the 5:30 kickoff or whatever it is Do you know what i mean it's yeah it's definitely a film to ease you into the the harrowing real, like, realisation of a Monday morning at work. Um, God, I, I don't want to go to work. Um, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, Phone um, Booth, definitely worth a watch if you've not seen it. Mm. And um, classic kind of early
1: 2000s. Um, is it Farrell? Is it Farrell? Yeah. Yes, Farrell. Yeah. Keith yeah. Sutherland, yeah. And it's, um, it's Joel Schumacher, who obviously we've done some of his worst films with fucking... Trespass on mm-hmm. this podcast, so yeah, it's nice for him to get po- mentioned in a positive way for a change.
2: Yeah, well, Kiefer's other one was the biggest thing in the entire world because twenty four. Yeah, he, he was yeah.
1: everywhere. It was this time, wasn't it? Because this must have been what two thousand and two, three, something like that. Yeah, uh, two thousand and two. So yeah, it was when when Kiefer was the man. But, mm. um, my film, which I, I I don't know what I thought both of you were going to mention this at one point. So my is. Actually, it's a very, very similar storyline to this. It's a history of violence. Mm. Technically a comic book movie, but there's absolutely nothing comic booky about it. Um, When a pair of petty criminals try to rob his diner, Tom manages to easily kill both of them and save his patrons. When this story hits the news, a threatening uh, threatening stranger, Carl, arrives, accusing Tom of being a missing Philadelphia mobster. It's got very similar themes to this one. Uh, Vigo Mortensen, Ed Harris both star in this film it's a David Cronenberg film but it's one of his more straight lace films as well really, really enjoyable movie
2: I don't think I've ever seen it yeah, it's been a
1: while since I've seen it but I have seen it, yeah, it's uh, it's good. good 2005, I think it was released if I remember rightly I remember I saw it at the cinema hated it, I just couldn't like get with it at all and then watched it a few years later and I'm like, well, actually, this is excellent um, but I really like Ed Harris, especially when he plays that the threatening stranger, the you know the man in black. If you watch um, Westworld, that kind of character is him to a T. I think so. Yeah, History of Violence is my pick. Right then, that's another Nick Cage movie in the record books. If you've seen this one yet, or any of the others we've ever spoke about, get in contact cagefightingpod at gmail.com on the email or the socials at cagefightingpod. Uh, please make sure that you're subscribed on whatever podcaster that you listen to us on so that you don't miss a darn episode. And if you could leave us a review whilst you're there, we would love you forever. So finally, thank you very much for giving us your time this week. If you could spread the words to your friends, that would be fantastic. Uh, we'll be back next week with a music cast. That'll be Mr. Matthew. will be taking the reins on that one. Um, and this for this week, Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Ciao, everybody. Have a spectacular, splendid,
0: profitable week ahead. Up the Wolves as well, going into the new season. Stuart, I'll see you tomorrow
2: for a beer on the concourse, no doubt. Oh, well, absolutely. Cheap beer up there. And this is yet again another film that mentions cheese and doesn't mention the evil that is Red Leicester. So that's always a good thing. Goodbye, everyone. I don't know what you don't like about Red Leicester. It's, it's pointless. There's no, there's no reason for it to exist. It's just waste of space. But I mean, fucking cheddar, it's the dullest cheese ever. Yeah, but it's... Again, think of the pensioners.
1: <laughs> they, they need something that's not going to make them shit the pants. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's goodbye from me, and remember, I want it to be 100% sex tonight. <laughs> <laughs>